BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Let's go places. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And all those decisions can lead to big results, like more time in range and lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility. Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Oh, man. Oh, man. It's Behind the Bastards, the podcast about people who aren't good by people who are good. This week, our person who are good is Jamie Loftus. How how are you doing? I'm doing good. It's real hot. I'm I'm excited for the episode. It is uh, hot, but you know what a random lady told me once in Georgia? What? When you feel the sun on your back, that's just Jesus smiling at you. <laughs> wow, that's that's a good positive spin for global mm-hmm. warming. I it like is a there's good just spin Jesus for global warming. There's a good Jesus chance that lady didn't hard. believe in global warming, so <laughs> she was a white lady in rural Georgia. So there's there's not a lot of ways that story's going to end super happy. Um, you know what a white lady in rural Georgia told me once when I tried that? to special order a hot dog? What was that? She said, "This isn't Burger King. You don't get it your way. Fuck off." See, and I love that lady. Me- I love her too. I'll bet that lady's based as hell. Gnarly hot dog. She gave me a really gnarly (laughs) hot dog. It was wet. (laughs) (laughs) That's what you get for bringing your goddamn big city bullshit to her her wholesome small town hot dog, whatever it was. I came in too hot. I was swinging my dick around at a a diner. You're swinging your dick around at a hot dog shop, which is basically full of dicks already. So nobody's impressed. Yeah, like, I, I, it was disrespectful you of go, me, and you I go was swinging, right to be told off. You go swinging your dick around at a Euro place. Well, that's 
pretty much perfect because a gyro is basically a pocket, <laughs> you know? It's, it's the true. most. You can, there's, yeah. it's, it, it's easy to start uh, mm-hmm. having sex with the hero. It is very, it's incredibly easy. A hero or a hero, both of them very easy to fuck. Oh, both um, very fuckable. Yeah. Yeah. Although you have more opportunity to get like some hip work in with the hero because the hero, it's just going to come out the sides, you know? Wait, I'm trying to visualize this. Yeah. It's going to come out the sides? As long as you're fine with penetrating the Jiro, right? Pushing through that that back uh, yeah, that that's back not layer. We have a yeah, very long Then it'll, it'll stay today. in okay, Robert, especially Robert. if you like hold the edges so can, up, whereas the, the Hero, it's just kind of, because it's an open-sided <gasps> sandwich, right? Hi. So that, ro- okay, the open-sidedness of yeah. it. Yeah. Now but I understand you're not gonna, what you're saying. You're not going to punch part. your dick through the bread of the Hero, though, because you can just fuck straight through, and they're usually... Longer than anybody, but you know what's, what's that guy? This out uh, for TikTok. Uh, That's what's all that I'm fellow? Saying. The guy who was really Wilt Chamberlain. Unless you're Wilt Chamberlain, then you might. Then Get you might. off of Wilt. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> I learned who Wilt Chamberlain was through a Cartoon Network cartoon. Same. Only because I. Yeah. Yeah. Foster's Home for Imaginary Friends. Oh, I think I learned about him from an episode of. Wasn't he? He was a guest on Scooby Doo, right? Wilt. Ch- <gasps> Yes, he was. Yeah, yeah. Whoa. It was the mystery of the man with the enormous cock. <laughs> okay. The script. Okay. I, I, once again, the script is really long. It is just almost 16,000 words. Yes. Just one more thing. I'm not, I'm, I'm down to fuck a hero sandwich with a, with a strap on. Sure. Good for know. sure. Absolutely. Without doubt. Absolutely, and and I think it's just like about finding the right shop and the right and the and the right hero. You know, you know, you don't want to be like yes. pressured if you're not feeling it in the moment. Maybe somebody puts like like the like the, like uh, uh, jalapenos, but not like the pickled kind that that go really good with lettuce. Ooh, and you're like, well, yeah. I don't really want like just a straight up jalapeno on this. I want like that texture change you get when they're pickled. You know, and there's just some food you don't want on your crotch. It's like, have you ever sure, accidentally sure. horseradish? Oh my God. Right. Yeah. Have you ever accidentally put Dr. Bronner's soap on your privates? Your oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, my God. After one shaving for worst... a party once. Horrible. No one told me. No. I didn't. Bad decision. The bottle, the bottle famously has too many words. I'm not going to read that. No. But there are a couple of very important words. Don't put them directly onto your onto that your peppermint, vagina. That or peppermint gonna... shit, it burns like the god. Yeah. It's I like fucking napalming your junk. I stopped listening when Jamie said it was wet. Mm-hmm. I was well, showering with someone, Robert, and I did that, and then I had to play it off. Like, oh, no. <laughs> it was humiliating. Oh, man. And then it's like he absolutely, he saw what I had done, mm-hmm. but I couldn't admit my mistake. I was too No, proud. this feels good. It feels like a. I want to stay here. Mm. Let's have breakfast. Yeah, it was, I I enjoy oh. the feeling of my my junk getting burned you're, by a schizophrenic man's soap. Oh. I <laughs> horrifying. Once again, if any, oh, I'm if, glad. If, it just feels nice just to say it out loud. If, I've never said if, it out loud before. I'm, I'm I, glad we're having this five minute long conversation before I've introduced <laughs> the topic of the episode. But before you get yeah. to that, I just want to say that somebody, please clip this out for TikTok for me. For me, yeah. No let's comment. become TikTok stars, Jamie. Yeah. How do you? Speaking of burning genitalia, do you think about <laughs> goop often? 
I yes, I've been thinking about goop quite a bit lately. Yeah, not yeah. and not the Gwyneth. Now, not of you, the Gwyneth flavor. I, I was speaking of the Gwyneth one, but you, yeah, goop oh. Gwyneth Paltrow's like like snake oil brand. Or you think about you, you think about thinking, QAnon yes. a lot. Q just came back on right after the repeal of Roe v. Wade started posting. That's not great. Yeah, Is no, that on your mind no. a little bit. No, uh, a little alarming. And and literal Nazis. Those are probably on your mind occasionally, right? They're on my mind far more than I'd like to admit. What if I were to tell you that the uh-huh. ideas behind all of these groups have a single origin point, and in fact, an origin point in a single woman? They can all trace their lineage back to one broad. What, what if I were to tell you that, Jamie? I would say I know exactly who that broad is, and I can't wait for you to tell me about her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We are talking today about Helena Blavatsky, um, a woman so influential that the only way to start her episode was by spending five minutes talking about burning genitalia as a result of a variety of mistakes and fucking sandwiches. And I honestly don't know where she would fall on any of those issues, to be perfectly honest. Well, that's there, interesting. It, We're going to get into this, but she would claim most of her her life as a prominent figure that she was utterly celibate. But her biographer, at least one of her biographers claim, she was just like, as as the kids say, she was balls deep in that euro, you know? Okay. Okay. Yeah. So she she was in the in the hero. Okay. I'm mm-hmm. excited for this because she has. I mean, I know we're going to talk about it, but she has a jumping off point of the uh, that directly intersects with the show I was just working on. Uh, Ghost. Yes. She she started with some spiritualism stuff. Oh yes. And then and then she really took it to an eleven she, in uh, the least pleasant way. What's interesting, so because y- your show is about spiritual, specifically American spiritualism, because there's different strains yeah. of it. She was mm-hmm. kind. Of, you know what a magpie is? That bird that like lays its eggs in another bird's nest. She was that yeah. for spiritualism. She was never a spiritualist. Mm-hmm. She just snuck in there to sell her own thing. Um, it's right. a very <laughs> cool story. I'm um, very very excited because I, I started researching her for the show, and then it just quickly became apparent that not only is there a at least a 16,000 word script to be had about it. I could have gone longer. Yeah. And and also that like, like you're saying, like she wasn't actually in, she was just interested in the, uh, the eyes and ears that spiritualism had. Yeah. And it's one of those things, the the religion she creates, theosophy, I'm sure there's going to be some theosophists that are just going to be livid with us at the things we leave out. It's, I, I read two biographies about this woman. Both of them were very long. Both of them have so much detail no one would ever need unless you're interested in specific arguments that weirdo occult people were having in 1885. Like, and it, it, it's I mean, like, it's like pages and pages. I am kind of like, interested in And of course, you honest. all know who this guy is. He wrote the, like, um, so I'm trying to boil most of that out. It's also worth noting both of the biographers I read are like believers. So no, okay. there are no credible sources for most of this. There are a few facts that we can say for certain. And then it's like, here's one story. Here's another story. Because she's like, she's an L. Ron Hubbard figure. She 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 never told the same story about her background twice, basically. Um, <laughs> so we're going to do our best here. But first, we're going to start um, well before the birth of Helena Blavatsky um, by talking about the concept of Orientalism. Um, Now, today, Oxford Languages describes Orientalism as, quote, the representation of Asia, especially the Middle East, in a stereotyped way that is regarded as embodying a colonialist attitude. Um, I think today when people use the word, they're mainly thinking of, like, specifically China, um, but this includes 
a lot of colonialist attitudes towards India and obviously towards like the Middle East, uh, towards Northern Africa. Um, and this is a, a bad thing. If somebody accuses you of being an Orientalist, they're accusing you of a very specific kind of white supremacy, right? But back in the 1600s, Orientalism was still a thing, but it wasn't necessarily white supremacist. You could definitely say it was racist, although even that's a little off to me. Basically, it's it was based on stereotypes of Asia, many of which were wrong, but the stereotypes weren't based in hate as much as the fact that it was the 1600s and it was kind of hard to get good information about India if you were like living in France, right? So like people just like believed things and didn't really have any way to confirm them. Um now, specifically, Orientalism in the 1600s would have actually centered more around Cairo and Egypt than it would have, because that was the East, right? That was the that was the the like um, that was the 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 kind of old world to people in that period of time, this Enlightenment period, and it was it was the center of historic knowledge, right? Cairo had 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 the Library of Alexandria, this kind of mythic. I mean, it did exist in some form, but this like also very mythical library that's supposed to contain all of the knowledge human beings. It's this, it's this place where you go to find the secret truths of the ancients. Hey, I misspoke here and said Cairo had the Library of Alexandria. I meant to say Egypt had it. Obviously, the Library of Alexandria was in Alexandria. It is so fascinating. Like whenever you look at texts from that time, like I know that we're absolutely skull fucked when it comes to uh, the prolifer like the proliferation of false info now. But just <laughs> like people in the West their perception of Egypt would have been formed by only just like a couple of random Western people. And it's yeah. all just so incredibly vague and entitled. Yeah. And it's just wild. Well, it's also, I mean, one of the things that's interesting. So again, in the 1600s, um, Egypt is kind of like the occult center of, of Western conceptions of, of like magic and stuff. Um, mm -hmm. The same is kind of true for the ancient Romans. That's the idea of like, for how fucking old Egyptian civilization is. 2,000 years ago in like Caesar's day, like hip Romans are going to Alexandria, Cairo, to like do some of the same shit because they're like interested in this like ancient mystical tradition and stuff. And they're um, like multiple gods. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe it. Yeah, it's it's. It, I, mean, I mean, they had multiple gods too. But um, yeah, it's, no, I mean, it's the Romans did. But I'm, oh, I'm yeah. talking about once once we get to just uh one one big guy. Yeah, yeah it it remains this kind of. There, there's this always been this fascination with with Cairo and with with Egypt in particular as this kind of like center of occult traditions. Um, and it's also worth noting that in the 1600s, like shit like the pyramids, like legitimately they couldn't imagine how they could have been constructed. Um, they address so, that in the first scene of Despicable Me. Oh, good. I'm glad. Yeah, it it's was the inflatable. minions, right? It, it yeah, the, the, well, no, it was inflatable. Oh, okay, okay. And then yeah. the minions and went it was to sleep. the minions. The minions <laughs> put it there. They used and, all their little minion breath to inflate and, and it. And then they went to sleep while Hitler was doing his thing, huh? You know, it's That's fun. They never account for the like the other massacres. Like, where were the minions during Rwanda? Like, were they helping out with that shit? Like, were the minions aiding Slobodan Milosevic in the massacre at Srebrenica? Like, were well, the minions canonically? Yeah. Canonically, the minions serve the most evil person. I, so, I want to recut that documentary, The Act of Killing, for when that like Indonesian fascist is talking oh about how he God. would strangle people. There's like an elderly minion behind him with the wire. You are not putting <laughs> minions in the act of killing. Absolutely Someone not. needs to, Jamie Loftus. So, Look, 
the way guys. in which Europeans during the Enlightenment treat Egypt is not very different from how a lot of New Age truth seekers treat India today, right? Right down to the fact that like people from Europe would move there to like get do fancy spiritual stuff. They do um, the Steve Jobs. Now, obviously. It is kind of like India's kind of the spot for that today, right? Particularly there's a couple of cities like Rishikesh where like white people love to go to like learn different sort of like Eastern uh, uh, spiritual traditions and whatnot. Um, yeah, and a lot the of white reason, spiritualists do that. Yeah, and, and Cairo is not so much, right? You don't hear of a lot of Westerners going to Cairo to like get involved in spiritual stuff today. And the reason mm-hmm. why that switch happened, uh, why kind of the capital of – I guess what you'd call Western Eastern spiritualism uh, moves mm-hmm. from Egypt to India has a lot to do with a dude you've probably heard of named Voltaire. Um, yeah. And, and Voltaire is real into this, this idea that there are sacred truths in like kind of Eastern and Asian religion and mythology that Westerners have forgotten. Um, and specifically in a way that like, he thinks gives them kind of moral superiority over Westerners. In Candide, he gives kind of the final word in the book to a Turkish dervish. Uh, In The Princess of Babylon, he depicts a golden age civilization on the banks of the Ganges. Um, Voltaire was probably- Classic Voltaire. Um, <laughs> I know so much about him. I, I I know every word. Yeah, you're. I you've you've famously got Voltaire's face tattooed across your lower back. Um, Voltaire is not a uh, mainly something I associate with one line in the Princess Diaries. One definitely not. <laughs> yeah. So um. He was probably the best known influence and most influential Orientalist of his day, which was like most of the 1700s. This guy lived for fucking ever. He was born in 1694 and died in 1778. Pretty good run for that period in time. Yeah. I think he had a lot of syphilis by the end there, but who didn't, right? I was like, did he not go outside? How do you you achieve that lifespan? uh, He did all right. For the day. I mean, that's pretty doing pretty good for now. Um, so one of the things that he wrote during his very long life was an essay on the spirit of nations, um, which okay. listed China and India. He's kind of going through in a list what he views as like the oldest civilizations. And it lists he lists China and India as as the very oldest of civilizations. Um, now, Voltaire was not making any kind of archaeological argument here, um, certainly not in the sense that you or I would talk about today. He was instead yeah. arguing in favor of a concept in vogue at the time called diffusionism. Now, today we map cultural inventions like, say, the Phoenician alphabet back to specific origin points, right? At some point, a person or persons in Phoenicia made an alphabet and it became popular, right? In the same way that, like, at some point, some motherfuckers made an iPhone and it became popular. But diffusionists didn't think that that's how inventing stuff worked. They believed that there had been some great civilization in the past in which all great cultural inventions came from, right? There was some golden age. Yeah. Like an ideological Pangea situation. Like that's exactly what they think. That's exactly what. Well, that's that's an interesting idea. I think diffusionists believe there had been kind of like a couple of civilizations in the past that everything came from. Radical okay. diffusionists went that all believe that all human culture and technology had like a single origin point. Um, huh. Now, one of the things that was cool about Voltaire was that he argued, and this is what he was doing by listing China and India as like old, because basically if you believe this, the older a civilization is, the, the closer it is to like the human original ideal civilization, you know, okay. like the further yeah. back you go. So by arguing that India and China were older than like any of kind of the Judeo-Christian civilizations, he was 
arguing against the primacy of Judeo-Christian beliefs in the broad sweep of human history, which is a pretty cool thing to be doing at the time. Um, So when he listed India and China as coming before Judaism in his essay, he was making the claim that Christianity and Judaism were kind of copying or descending from older belief systems. Now, a thing that doesn't rock about this is that Voltaire also described the Jews as basically stealing their culture from other people. um, Right, I was like, that does seem... Exactly. There's Mm, problem. It's good that like, okay, yeah, in the 1600s, probably Christian people needed a little bit of like a, hey, you're not the center of human development, right? That part's they good. Don't like, the they, part, they don't like hearing that, Robert. Yeah. They hate that shit. And the bad part is that Voltaire focuses a lot on the Jews and, and specifically them as stealing their culture from older cultures and not inventing anything of their own, which is a, a central pillar of anti-Semitism, particularly Nazi ideology, right. focuses a lot on like Jewish cultural theft. It's like a huge thing the Nazis are, which for a bunch of Christians is very funny. But anyway, whatever. I mean, um, well, outside outside of like just like bald-faced anti-Semitism, is there a reason that he does not accuse Christians of the same thing? Like. I think he kind of does, but he really just focuses on Jewish people. Um, he, I'm not an expert on Voltaire, but he spe- he does okay. spend. I think most people will agree he was a bit anti-Semitic. Now, anti-Semitic for the time—that's probably too much to say because it was everyone like. There's regular pogroms and shit in this period, you know. So he's he's right. he's pretty in line with a lot of Europeans in this moment. Um, okay. I want to quote now from a fascinating write-up by Dan Edelstein titled Hyperborean Atlantis. Quote, The Jews, as well as every other people that succeeded the Ur-Civilization, which is like the the golden age civilization everything comes from, merely perpetuated a complete cultural system, which they inherited from the primogenitors of human society. At a time when polygenetic theories about the origin of human races were rampant, radical diffusionism was further bolstered by the notion that only certain select peoples could have had, would have had the requisite qualities for inventing culture. According to Voltaire, these primogenitors of all human knowledge were Indian. This hypothesis was particularly seductive, as it could be extended to the most sophisticated aspects of human culture, namely the sciences. The belief in the super-sophistication of Brahmanic culture grew stronger after Sir William Jones's discovery of Sanskrit grammar. But even before the Asiatic researchers saw the day, Brahmanism was being hailed as the original science. And this is, you'll see bits of this today. If you listen to like people talk about the Bhagavad Gita, there's a lot of focus, particularly in the West, on like passages that could be talking about witnessing a nuclear weapon and stuff. And right, this even goes both ways because famously um, was Oppenheimer quotes from the Bhagavad Gita when he sets off the first atomic bomb, right? Now I am become death, such and such, destroyer of worlds, yada, yada. Um, but there's these drama like, queen. There, you can find a lot of queen. conspiracies about like, oh, these, these things from the Vedas or, or whatnot, or the, these like bits of Indian art kind of look like they could be like a spaceship or something. And so maybe like well, the Bhagavad, may, maybe these, these ancient Hindu texts are talking about some like prehistoric war with, between advanced, with an advanced human civilization that tore itself apart and we're all living in there. It's a thing people okay. talk about today, right? That's not a, a, a particularly common Hindu belief, but it's like a thing particularly Westerners will talk about today. So that, that's kind starts. of like my, that's kind of my big question so far is like when Voltaire and, and the Voltaire adjacents talk about India and Egypt, are they talking about the Western perception of Egypt? Is anything they're saying based in actual 
fact. It, or... Yeah, there's usually ten or fifteen percent actual fact because you'll get like oh, some, you know that's a, lot a higher like, hit rate than a lot of people. A lot of it is like some Ro- for for the Egyptian stuff, some Roman or some Greek like spent okay. time in Egypt and like wrote about religious and half of what they're writing is like, maybe they saw some like worship and half of it is like okay. some dude at a bar told them about a ritual. And that all kind of gets like mashed together into like Herodotus writing about like what the Egyptians believed. And then a thousand ish, a couple of thousand years later, some like European in fucking Paris or London reads that and like, you know, off to the race as we go. Um, you know, I, I'm hanging out at the wrong bars. The bar I went and, to last week said that overturning Roe v. Wade uh, was good for me. I just didn't know it yet. Oh, well, that's sounds like a bar in Florida. Um, <laughs> or or, or Orange County um, or parts <laughs> of San Bernardino. Um, it was Atwater Village. Shout out Atwater Village for having ugh. some anti-abortion uh, old men. Continue. Yeah, that sounds right. So speaking yeah. of old men, uh, Voltaire argued strongly that India, not Egypt, should be considered the font of civilization. So he's saying that like even the Egyptians are just kind of like copying off of this great original Indian civilization. Um, okay. And as you pro- probably has accro- occurred to a couple of people listening right now, um, the things that he's arguing about and that other argue, uh, are, like writers in the same vein are arguing about meshes pretty well with like the most popular myth in Western mythological canon, Atlantis, right? Okay, yes. You're, there's not <laughs> I a, had not made that connection, like, but yes. There's like this perfect golden age civilization with advanced technology that that's like somehow got destroyed and we're all descended from them. Um, like that's not that far off from how a lot of people interpret Atlantis. Now, the, yeah. the original myth of Atlantis comes from like uh, Plato as written by some other dude, right? Like it's not... Uh, not it's like not a play- from the Michael J. Fox movie. Yeah, no, this is like this is like when Plato got played by Ewan McGregor um, twenty years later, um, <laughs> or when uh, Salvador Dali got played by Robert Pattinson. I feel like people don't talk. Oh about my that god, enough. that did happen! What a bad shit thing to do, especially absolutely since unhinged. If, if you are casting Dali, fucking Pedro Pascal is right there, and he has proven his willingness to grow a mustache. Oh, he's and, and he can actually do it. You know who he didn't do, do it so, for the yeah, role? It's Robert Pattinson. <laughs> Robert Pattinson, baby. It's uh, oh, that and remember me, iconically bad Robert Pattinson joints. shit. Absolutely Just, outstanding shit. Uh, um, good movie night vibe. Anyways, so, continue. <laughs> uh, according to Plato, was written by some other dude. Atlantis was the home of a very advanced people. Uh, modern writers always take that to mean like spaceships and free energy. In Plato's day, I an mean, advanced civilization meant like their aqueducts worked better, right? Like that's what he was not <laughs> advantage imagining starships. He was like, yeah, and they're really good at making water move. <laughs> <laughs> the you know roads the don't get is muddy. Incredible at <laughs> yeah. aqueduct um, shit. It in. In time, Atlantis mutated as a myth into a pre-Egyptian globe-spanning civilization that had colonized the world in a manner similar to how Europeans had started to colonize it in the 1600s, right? The Atlantis myth kind of transforms to ape what Europeans are doing at the same time, right? Europeans see themselves conquering the entire world and colonizing it. And because these myths, like they kind of adapt the Atlantis myth in media res to be, oh, this happened before. And, you know, Just there's confirmation bias. Oh, right. Loving yeah, when exactly. people manufacture their own confirmation bias myths. Yeah. Galaxy so, brain shit. There's a lot of guys who are like, 
super hard for this or a good example, Sir Francis Bacon gets his like, <laughs> like it's just coming constantly over fucking Atlantis in the early like. 1600s. And um, yeah, in the late 1700s, near the end of Voltaire's life, an astronomer named Jean Sylvain Bailey decides to find Atlantis, right? This like, because it's all, it's this, they've decided there's, because of folks like Voltaire, they don't really believe that Atlantis is this like Greek island anymore. Um, and in fact, a lot of people are like placing it in the east, but nobody knows where it was. So they all very much believe in this place that kind of its existence, especially mm-hmm. if you if you imagine that you're going to find some artifacts that like maybe have some writing and stuff that looks Latin or something in there, its existence could kind of justify what you're doing in colonizing the world, right? If some previous right. civilization had ruled the world and you're kind of descended from them, you know, that's how what a lot of people are thinking, right? Um, right. So, it's so funny uh, to me. It's like the, fa- the fact that there were people looking for Atlantis back in the day and people, <laughs> like, it, I, they are just like the Bigfoot hunters of, their time basically Look, and people act Jamie, like it's the most uncivilized thing in the world i just like dude there, this used to be a thriving industry it's if, a dying industry if i were at the point i am in my career now in like the early 1990s which was famously a period in which there were no problems i would be doing nothing but looking for atlantis and bigfoot like yeah i yeah. the thing is it's not the silliest thing you could do i don't like when it's treated that way no, the silliest thing you I could do, do is is write a book about how history has come to an end. Um, that's right, <laughs> Fukuyama. Go look for Atlantis, motherfucker. So Jean-Sylvain Bailey decides, I'm going to find Atlantis. And because history is actually not as cool as fiction, he does not put together a badass steampunk expedition with hot air balloons and shit, which is, a, uh, is heartbreaking. J- devastating, Jamie. What a Absolutely bummer. devastating. So he's um, not doing the steampunk cartoon no, movie that no. I used to love. No, no, it, it is it, it wrenches my soul in twain. But he writes a bunch of really boring books trying to use math and logic to like figure out where it would have been. Um, Fucking yawn. I know. God. Fuck you, Jean Sylvain Bailey. Like, go to suck a I didn't hero ask sandwich for homework. after it's been fucked. I want to go to Atlantis, yeah. bitch. Yeah. Okay. Come on. Anyway, whatever. <laughs> uh, in Bailey, we see the synthesis of the diffusionist trend with a new 18th century appreciation for the value of myths, previously rejected as being the beliefs of pre-rational civilizations, which is a uh, fucked up term, but that's what they're talking about, right? They view civil earlier civilizations as pre-rational. I don't believe that's the case because you can't survive as a hunter-gatherer if you're not pretty rational, but whatever. Scholars and in also this period, are even yeah. arguing that the West yes. was rational at this time. Exactly, exactly. There's a lot that's, like, that's wrong with so that. This is, this is how they were talking about it scholars in this period um though this is actually kind of kind of in some ways a positive trend where like there a lot of scholars are going against this attitude that earlier civilizations had been like just fundamentally irrational and there's nothing to learn about their mythology scholars start to argue that like well no there's actually a lot of truth in in certain myths that's why like they spread um and the good the the aspect of this is healthiest and so we should like study and appreciate the different mythologies and whatnot that human beings have embraced over time because they can teach us a lot about ourselves instead a lot of scholars decide like well this must mean that all of these myths are like branches of some great historic truth that has been corrupted over time and if we can mm-hmm. figure out like a, a secret set of codes that allow us to like peel away the parts of the myths that have gotten corrupted over time you could unlock a sacred discourse that reveals the truth about history History. Um, so that's I not. I think you so said much. a sacred Discord for a sacred, second, and that no, was a very no. funny. There is a special Discord board. That's people are doing that. There is Channel. now. 
Sorry. Uh, so Dan yeah. Edelstein writes, quote, Hercules's twelfth and last labor in the traditional sequence led him beneath ground to capture Cerberus, just as Persephone, another solar figure, had disappeared underground for half the year. These episodes and others, Bailey surmised, symbolized the complete disappearance of the sun. The inventors of the myth must therefore have lived at a latitude where the sun periodically vanished from the sky. Dismissing earlier theories about the location of Atlantis, Bailey thus reached the surprising conclusion that Atlantis lay near the North Pole, roughly where the Novaya Zemlya archipelago is situated. So, you see what he's doing there he's being like number one he's saying that like well because all of these myths have a common origin point and it's much older it can't be like greece like it has to be older um the hercules myths can't have just been some things some greek dudes came up with when they were drunk as shit around a campfire it has to originate from somewhere so let's well let's pinpoint within the story ah they're talking about an eclipse which must mean that they live near the north pole (laughs) (laughs) i in some ways you gotta hand it to him. It's very funny. It's very funny the wild. way the logic works. Like, and you're seriously, also like, my dude. Africa, Africa is also here. Like, there, there's other places we can explore oh, and, and no, trace the myth. I mean, not uh, explore, but you know. again, it is funny that like this is one of those cases where the 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 people earlier and who were generally wronger about a lot of things were right about the origin of civilization or writer when they like. proposed that it was in Egypt because like yeah it did start in like North Africa like that's more more or less North Africa and like bits of the Middle East but it's like only Egypt that is worth exploring it's just ugh so they go to the Hercules myth too yeah they they go I mean Hercules clearly grew up in the North Pole Jamie I don't know if you've read Hercules look would I watch that movie a million percent, I would watch that movie. There, I, I, I like to think. I was like, what would be the like popular current myth that people could <laughs> that once uh, society collapses, that uh, future cryptids can uh, assume is based on truth? I'm like, is it uh, Aragon? Is yeah, it? Yeah, I, let's 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 have it be the ripoff of J.R.R. Tolkien. Like, yeah, <laughs> let's have it be Aragon or uh, my favorite vampire story, Cirque du Freak. Let's have it be Cirque du Freak. There you go, Jamie. Let's yeah, yeah. Have it. it it'll be Cirque du Freak. Um, that's <laughs> our our foundational myth. Um, yeah. Also, I think that, <laughs> that Santa Claus should start great. traveling around with Hercules. Oh, hundred percent. But but specifically. Young Arnold Schwarzenegger Hercules, where he can't really talk like in English. Like he's just like he's just like pronouncing words phonetically because he doesn't know what he's saying. Oh my god. I want that Hercules hanging out with Santa Claus, just hucking people into the East Bay. Um, North Pole Hercules is a strong Mm -hmm. idea for a franchise. Mm -hmm. Free IP folks. Go nuts. All right, come on, Disney. Money on the table. You know what else is money (laughs) on the table, Jamie Loftus? Tell me what. The products and services that support this podcast, money we're taking, which is why you're about to hear these ads. I hope they're about to try. I hope Gwynny's about to try to sell you a jade egg. Oh, mm. wouldn't that be Fing- amazing? Fingers crossed. Well, Look, other things I'm- crossed. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if people have learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. Mint Mobile wireless plans are 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. You think, what's the catch? But there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. You can use your own phone and bring your own phone number along with your existing contacts. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash behind. That's mintmobile.com slash behind. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com. Dot com slash behind. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Ready to unlock a world of entertainment? Philips Roku TV has America's favorite TV streaming platform built in. So you can watch live TV, catch every game, discover must-see shows and hit movies, and get all the best streaming apps in one place, like iHeart for all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts. Watch what you want, when you want. Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club. We're back! Oh! So, have, you ever, have you ever seen a jade egg, Robert? I've seen jade eggs. I haven't seen anyone... The kind put, that you stick in your... I've seen some people put some things inside them. I'll tell you that much. Oh, um, my God. I got I this friend u- who can put one of those metal Coke straws all the way up. Anyway. Um, I, used to use, I used to use one as a stage prop where I did a show where at the end, like I would have the jade egg in... I would put it in at the beginning of the show, and then people would f- totally forget I had done that, and they would also assume I never actually did it. And right, then at it was the some end, of hand shit, yeah. And then at the end, I would they would watch me pull it out, and then and and people hated it, Robert. They did not like it. But See, I had a weird, great time. You don't when even I know. I was a that. kid. I had great parties that only happened because somebody was able to hide a bag full of pills inside themselves in a similar way and drive across Dallas when there that's were a bunch of good, fucking checkpoints set up. Huh? That's a good comrade. That's a that's good a, comrade. That's a good yeah. buddy. Yeah. Um, so we're talking about 
Bailey and his conclusion that Atlantis lays near the North Pole, right? And okay, this yes. this is what brings us the concept that is called today like Hyperborean Atlantis. Hyperborea is this like mythical in some myths, it's like a, it's like a whole like Pangaea style continent way back in the day. But the Hyperboreans are like this mythical people who had supposedly existed somewhere in the far north of Greece, like far north of Greece, and worshipped Apollo. And these kind of okay. Hyperboreans, kind of that Hyperborea becomes kind of the word for the the civilization, the great civilization that everything had originated from. It's also the mm-hmm. civilization that Conan the Barbarian comes from in the Robert Howard novels, but that's because Howard is specifically a fan of this, like, mythology. He's, like, growing up. This okay. is all still very, like, when Robert Howard, the guy who creates Conan the Barbarian, is, like, writing his yeah. stories, this mythology is, is incredibly common um, because Got of it. Helena Blavatsky. Um, but, Oof. yeah, so Hyperborean Atlantis is the concept that kind of comes up out as a result of, of Bailey's work. Um, and Bailey argues that the Hyperboreans had been real and that they'd lived up near the Arctic back when the world was warmer. Um, and again, at face value, that's just another silly myth theory. There's a bunch of different myths about early human beings that are all very fun, very fun, but not literally true, literally true. Um, yeah, I mean, for but, example, the, the opening of the movie Minions offers some really yes. interesting ideas about how Minions came to be. Well, you know, and, and Jamie, actually, that's based heavily on Catholic doctrine that's been buried beneath the Vatican for centuries. Um, well, but Minions do believe in in dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. Dinosaurs are a thing for Minions. It, well, their and for Catholics. Goes, yeah, really? Yeah, Catholic, Catholicism... They've always been shitty about abortion, but like they've been good about evolution for a long time. Um, okay, well that's good to know. There you go. I, I, I lapsed as a you Catholic, know what they're bad uh, about is child molestation, um, which the minions probably helped with. You have to assume, right? Okay, no, they didn't, Robert. Jamie, they're they... helping all of the villains. What's more of a villain than the Catholic Church in Ireland in like no. the last hundred and fifty years? They well, the do, English you, in Ireland over the last you do years, see them, I believe, unless I'm ta- unless I was misreading who they were. You see them help at the beginning of the movie. You see them help the dine. You see them help a T Rex. You see them help the meanest caveman. You Wait, see why is help- a T Rex a bad guy? It's just an animal. I hate they the were- man. Fuck this fucking show. You see, you see them help Napoleon Bonaparte. Oh, Napoleon was not a bad guy. He was the only hero in European history. Look, that's my this opinion. Is what happens in the movie? That and then they find Gru, who is um, Steve Carell, and he's Hitler. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna take that as as given. So, yes. Jamie, he is Hitler. Yeah. Uh, again, at face value, this idea of like a hyperborean Atlantis just sounds like another silly myth. Uh, but as Edelstein continues, the impact of Bailey's conclusions here uh, w- was significant. Quote, Bailey dissociated Atlantis from the Atlanteans, the place from the people. He thus mobilized the myth, tracing its progress from the North Pole through Asia via Mongolia down to India, and from there from east to west. Atlantis became a floating signifier, an indicator of cultural superiority and original that could be affixed to any place and people with whom the migrant Atlanteans might have come into contact. By situating their original homeland beyond the scope of empirical inquiry under the concealing lid of polar ice sheets, he turned the Atlanteans into what would soon become the 19th century myth par excellence, the myth of race, and more specifically, the white of the white races' peregrine... Uh, uh, peregrination... 
Yeah, I don't know how to say that word. Um, so basically, what I he's don't fucking know what doing it is. here. Let me, let me tell you here. Let me explain this. So basically, what he's doing is okay. he's saying that, like the Atlanteans came from this area near the North Pole, which is now under ice. You can't find it, so there's no documentation of it. And after this great calamity, the Atlanteans migrated down, like through China and then into India and then through the Middle East and then eventually to Europe, right? So mm-hmm. that, number one, there's elements of like – actual history that gels with, right? You have like the Indo-Aryans. We're not coming from the North Pole, but you have these like different groups of people primarily defined by like their language that do migrate from vast swaths of like of of the globe over periods of time. And so mm-hmm. there's bits and pieces of like evidence that shows like, oh, these people here, you know, originally like uh, uh, came from, or at least people migrated down from this area. And like, you can see evidence of that, which when you mm-hmm. just have bits of it kind of seems to confirm, oh, there's this like migrating race that's bringing civilization in its way, right? So basically a lot of white supremacists will eventually, this will evolve into like the Aryan myth, right? That there's this like, ancient Aryan race that brought civilization to Europe and it's being corrupted now. But there is this like original pure race that you can trace. And like the Nazis do trace them back to India. Funny how they always get back around to that. Like, yeah. I mean, and and it, again, there's bits of actual, because there there is like an Indo-Aryan like people that travel up from India and eventually make it into Eastern Europe and stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's not like what the Nazis are talking about. But the Nazis do, they sit, the Nazis send researchers to India to like um, the fucking Himalayas and shit to talk with um, uh, people that they believed are like the ancestors of the Aryans. Like there's a lot of, when are they, when are they doing that? In like the, in the thirties, twenties and thirties, there's an SS. Well, in the thirties, particularly once the Nazis gain power, there's an SS division called the Ananerbe, which is like the SS kind of occult history division. A lot of like historians and researchers are funded by the Nazis to go over into India and find evidence of the ancient Aryans because the Nazis Mm -hmm. believe so strongly in this idea that there's this earth culture that are our ancestors that traveled through the world and they've just been kind of like corrupted by mistakenly breeding and like the Jews come into this at a certain point. Um, So you just have to like send someone to find a scrap of information to create your confirmation bias myth. Yeah, and and we can, yeah, I'm going to continue that quote now. We can now fully fathom the political thrust of Bailey's gesture. Rather than orientalize Atlantis, which is what uh, Voltaire had done, he Atlanticized the Orient, making a snow-white northern European people, the Hyperboreans, responsible for the cultural achievements and splendors of the East. He did not deny Oriental achievements. On the contrary, he bent over backwards to concur with Voltaire that Asian civilizations were truly awe-inspiring. But a Hyperborean Atlantis allowed him to credit a European stock with the foundation of these ancient cultures. So Voltaire's like, obviously, like, we, we, we in Europe are not so fancy and we shouldn't be as proud of ourselves. Look at how much, like, grander these civilizations in the East were. And Bailey comes along and he's like, yes, and it's because these white Hyperborean Atlanteans brought them civilization before they brought it here, when their civilization was, like, closer to pure, and that's why they had all these achievements. But it's still, like, white people, right? Yeah. Yeah, it mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So Bailey's ideas did not gain tremendous ground in his time. Uh, Jules Verne actually mocks it. The whole book, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, is Jules Verne making fun of this guy pretty much. Um, it's one of those things wow. you don't catch now because, like, it's this argument between dudes who've been dead for 150. Yeah, but Verne is kind of, like, mocking Bailey specifically in that book. I um, always enjoy something like that where you're like, yeah. yeah, you can read the – like, when do you find out The Wizard of Oz is an allegory for something that you're like, well, yeah. I didn't know about <laughs> so, these agrarian yeah. things. 
like what this is not relevant to me but at the time people were like oh he got their asses well and that is the mark to me of like great like like you know shitty political shitty fiction it's very obvious that like ah this is just some like stupid political rant and if it's really good fiction, you know there's probably some dumb political rant there because all authors do that kind of shit, but you don't right. notice it. It's like right. Tolkien that's was true. actually extremely angry uh, about about Tory fiscal policy. And that's really what he's talking about when he he, he discusses the delineation of the different uh, orcish peoples from the elves. Um, it's all it's all I, I, that was I don't, I have, I don't know I've enough not about found, Tory I've, economic I've, policy to continue this joke. That was a lie. I've, I've not found elves. the patience in this lifetime to to dive into Tolkien lore. I don't think it's going to happen for me. Oh, it's funny. He he really hated the idea that anybody would read anything into his books, but like. But but the elves <laughs> and in the works only like gave he's things li- to read like, into. He, like he, the man lives through a battle of the Somme in which thousands of his comrades are like sucked into mud and drown in it, like while he watches. And then he like writes in his book about this battle where thousands of corpses are like trapped forever in a bog. And people are like, "Was this about like were you like writing about World War One at all?" And he like hits them in the face with a beer bottle. <laughs> like fuck you for assuming. <laughs> um, Exhausting. <laughs> What a king. So, Jamie, <laughs> yeah. th- this somewhat meandering discussion, um, you know, Bailey. I think it's been very on topic. Yeah, thank you. So, Bailey is kind of ignored in his time, mocked by guys like Jules Verne, but about 60 years after he publishes his work, a woman is going to be born who will take his ideas, expand them, and carry them forward into a new and bloodier age. Her name is Helena Petrovna von Hahn. And she's born on August 12th, 1831, in Ekaterinoslav, now Dniprovets in Ukraine. She's a Leo, so of she's course she's going to be a little bit showy, Robert. And her, her whole childhood is in, in Ukraine. Specifically, it's in like a lot of the parts of Ukraine that are, people are fighting and dying over right now. Um, mm-hmm. Her hometown, um, Ekaterinoslav, was a, a very modern city by the standards of the Russian Empire. It had been built just a century before, um, and it specifically was like a city they had established in like honor of Catherine the Great, um, who is mm-hmm. uh, the ruler of Russia for quite a while. Very interesting lady. Also a good friend of Voltaire. Just interesting yeah. note. Um, now, you may have noticed that she is – there's a Vaughn in her name, right? She's she's Helena yes. Petrovna von Hahn. Um, this means that she's nobility, but you also might oh, notice I that like Vaughn is, is German, right? Yeah. If you're a Vaughn is, is like a marker that you're a member of like the nobility in, in German culture. Whoa. Um, Robert, and, I'm, yeah. I feel like I should have known that. Does it, does everybody know that? Yeah. I think like the guy who assassinated Hitler, Klaus von Stauffenberg was Prussian nobility, right? Um, I didn't know that. All right. Yeah. It's why a lot of grifters put Vaughn in their name in like the 1800s, 1900s. It's because they're like pretending to be European nobles. Um, Okay. And obviously Von Hahn is a German name. She's German, but she's Russian because a huge chunk of the Russian aristocracy are actually German. This is going Mm -hmm. to cause serious problems for some of them in about a century. But at the time, everybody's fine about it because like they're serfs and they don't have any choice but to be fine about it. So anyway... She's German, but she's Russian, and she lives in Ukraine. This is mm-hmm. the Russian Empire. Not weird at the time. The first great event of her childhood would have been a cholera epidemic, which killed so many people that coffins piled up in the streets of her hometown unburied. Um, mm-hmm. Now, 
Her mother was 17 when she had her, which um, we're going to be talking about that quite a bit. Uh, her mom okay. is also named Helena, and she is not in particularly good health. Uh, she and her new baby both catch cholera and nearly die. Um, and in fact, young Helena the baby was so sick that her godparents and and household called for a priest to baptize her immediately as a newborn infant because like, okay. they thought she was going to die. Um, and according to family legends, Helena's aunt, who was actually also a child at the time, accidentally set the priest's robes on fire during the baptism, which <laughs> is a pretty cool thing to have happen at your baptism. Okay, that's um, pretty funny. You have to you have to hand it. It's dope. there is something uh, there is something about a near death experience as a baby that will just like set you on the most bizarre life paths. And unfortunately, I am thinking about Elvis Presley and how his twin died. And oh now they're God, like, you yeah. have to live the life of two men. And then it's like, you just, if, if something happened, if you almost died as a baby, you're going to have a very fucked up life due to the baggage that you're like constantly reminded of. Yeah. That's why we should hollow out the center of the country and make it a giant child prison. But that's a story for another day. So Jamie... Okay, Despite Denver the Airport. ill tidings, Helena and her mom both survived the epidemic. You may no notice that I have not mentioned her father yet. This is because he was a captain with Russia's horse artillery, some fancy royal unit, and he was generally not at home. He first meets his daughter okay. when she's six months old. Um, and this is going to be like the pattern for her life. He is away all the time. Um, okay. Now, her He's dad, fighting his in the name horse is wars. Horse artillery is like an elite military unit in this period. Like you're you're dragging, like it allows you to like drag cannons around and move them into position quickly. And P Peter von Hahn is kind of like an elite military commander for Tsar Nicholas I. He wins awards for helping to suppress a bunch of different uprisings. He is a shock trooper for the empire. Um, and okay. Nicholas I, who is like the Tsar at the time, is one of the most brutal and effective Tsars in the history of the Russian Empire. So mm -hmm. while Peter's daughter is struggling with her 17-year-old mom to survive cholera, he is helping to crack down on an uprising in Poland. And they kill thousands of people, like, stopping this uprising. It is blood running through the streets shit. Now, okay. the primary impact that all of this has on young Helena's life is that they move constantly. Um, also, her dad is 34 and her mom is 17, uh, which is mm. not cool. Um, wow, it's another also, uh, El Elvis again, parallel. Sorry. Not at all uncommon for the aristocracy at the time. This would have been kind of weird, sure. I think, for like normal people, but for aristocrats, not uncommon. Were they were they vaguely yeah. related? Do we know? I mean, probably right, uh, but I don't. I don't right. specifically know. Yeah, um, okay. I'm not gonna. We we could get into their genealogy. I'm sure a lot more if we wanted to. But who's got that kind of time? So yeah. the primary impact again. They move constantly, and they're generally because he's like a military officer whose job is to help put down rebellions. They're not staying in the good cities in Russia, right? They're in backwaters. You know, they're far from famous. All like from the art and cultural scene in in Russia, um, mm -hmm. and this is a problem for Helena's mother, who's again also Helena, because she becomes a celebrated novelist. Um, she's a really interesting lady, actually. Again, she's mar she marries yeah. her husband when he's like, she's a child. Um, but she, as a young adult, she starts writing novels that become actually very popular in Russia. And they're all about women who are in unhappy marriages to brutes. Um, so this we is like a part of her history that I was like, this is very cool. Like it this is, is dope. Her mom is a really yeah. interesting person. Yeah. Um, 
I want to quote a passage from one of her books titled The World's Judgment, which I found exerted in, excerpted in uh, Gary Lockman's biography of Madame Blavatsky. Mm-hmm. The fine, sharp, and fast mind of my husband, as a rule accompanied by a cutting irony, smashed every day one of my brightest, most innocent and pure aspirations and feelings. All that was sacred to my heart was either laughed at or was shown to me in the pitiless and cynical light of his cold and cruel reasoning. Ooh. So... I think you can grasp a lot about their relationship from that passage. I love, I mean, it's, it's, I just always, I don't know, my, my favorite areas of history are uh, women with no rights finding the way to, uh, to subtweet their oppressors into fucking oblivion. Like, that is so fun. And not to draw another minion's parallel, Robert. Okay, but please, please. the man who is at least the co-creator, one could argue the creator of the Minions, co-director of the Despicable Me franchise, Pierre Coffin, raised by a very famous Indonesian feminist who wrote novels uh, when she was still working as a flight attendant that became very famous, very influential. She marries a French guy. They have a, uh, you know, a, a little Pierre Coffin. And what does he do to thank her? Creates the minions, a, 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 an entire two great works just a of bunch art of, from two generations of a family. Or you can interpret it as all the minions are are men. They're all men doing evil things, and you're like, where where is he going with this? Does he realize it's all connected in the way that I I do when I go on my long walks? You know, mm-hmm. we don't yeah. know. We don't know. So, Jamie. That's uh, yeah. that's that's pretty, and I, I think we can assume from that passage also, sex probably wasn't great. Like, uh, no, pro- I, probably not. Know. Probably not very good. Probably, probably, probably I'm gonna guess Peter worse at sex than say uh, a, 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 a foot a foot long subway <laughs> sandwich. One of the ones on the uh, the 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 that herbs and 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 spices bread. The you herbs know? and spice. Well, that's, that's the see, best bread to fuck. If you're going to fuck some bread, you want to be fucking that herbs and spices, you know? That's the best bread, but I feel like it might have a Dr. Bronner's kind of effect on the Yeah, genitals. it's, it's going to be a little peppery. That's why you have a mad extra mayo. Yeah, you really need to wash right away. Yeah, you want and that. wash with mayo, right? It's it's like <laughs> washing your eyes out with milk if you get mad. Don't do that if you get tear gassed. I'm sorry. I don't even want to spread that. Um, oh funny, God. though, right? So, <clears throat> I don't know. Funny. Anyway. Helena, the mom, was never in, because again, they're both named Helena, was never in good health. uh, So she doesn't ever fully get better from getting horribly sick. And they move constantly, which is bad for her health. They live in army housing, which isn't good either. Um, Although she and her baby still have like, again, they're rich. They have a small army of servants at their beck and call. So it's, it's like hard, but not hard compared to how most people in Russia would be living at the time. Um... When she was two, uh, when Helena the baby, our Helena was two, her mom, also Helena, has another baby named Sasha who dies immediately, which was tradition for roughly half of babies at the time. And you know who else kills babies uh, roughly half the time? Is it the people who sponsor this show? On their special child hunting island off the coast of Indonesia. Um, that's been leaving a chicken with its throat slit on my front porch mm-hmm. every week for yep. six years. I can't pay them to stop. Mm-hmm. That's right, Jamie. You know why they're doing that? So you keep your mouth shut about the child hunting island off the coast of Indonesia. <laughs> oh my God. You're right. And, uh, and, and here we are. It's never going to end. 
BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. Ready to unlock a world of entertainment? Philips Roku TV has America's favorite TV streaming platform built in. So you can watch live TV, catch every game, discover must-see shows and hit movies, and get all the best streaming apps in one place, like iHeart, for all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts. Watch what you want, when you want. Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ah, we're back. Okay. After making Sophie mark a bunch of places in the episode to bleep out the name of. (laughs) Cool. (laughs) I like how you keep calling her uh, Helena the baby. Yes. Um, It does make her sound like a TikTok rapper. (laughs) Helena the baby. It does does make her sound like a TikTok rapper. She would have. Oh, my God. I have to say of all of the bastards we've talked about on this show, easily would have had the best TikTok. I do see what you're saying, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, she would have, yeah. we'll, we'll get to that. She would have dem- I mean, her legacy lives on TikTok. on TikTok, unfortunately. But Now, yeah. Saddam okay. Hussein, that's a Twitter head. That's a Twitter guy. You get Saddam on Twitter, ain't oh, nothing else happening on Twitter. Oh, no. Oh, man, that would have been a good time. He um, would be making... <laughs> He would be using the thread emoji often. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Oh my God, it would have been incredible. So God. after this, the family moved to, briefly to Saint Petersburg. Right? They get like stationed there for a year or two, which thrills Mom Helena because Saint Petersburg is like the cultural center of Russia. She's this is when her her literary career is starting to take off, and she's able to like go to art galleries and fancy parties and and sit at salons with other adults who aren't like drunken soldiers. This is like her dream life. She finally gets to live for like 
the only two years or a year or whatever that she will actually get to be anything close to happy. Um, when baby Helena is six, Peter tells them that they're going to have to move again to the middle of nowhere to brutalize people. And this time, mom Helena says no. Um, she refuses to move with her husband and like go with the army, basically. Um, so she stays in St. Petersburg a while, and then her father comes to her and asks if she and her daughter want to go on an adventure. Um, now, Helena's maternal grandfather father had been made a trustee for the Kalmuk, which was a wandering tribe of horse riding warriors who like the part of the area that they lived in. They had like a moving city and stuff that they took with them, and like part of the area that they they live in is in is in Russia. Um, I think they go to a number of places, but like they live mo- like within kind of the bounds of the Russian empire because it's big and there's different kind of rules for tribal peoples. And one of the things is you've got like this guy who's appointed by the government to be the intermediary of the tribe and the Russian government. And Helena's maternal grandmother gets that job for this, this group of like horse riding warrior nomads who are also Buddhist, right? So again, Russia's very fucking big. Um, so uh, he takes his daughter and his granddaughter on a journey to a city called Ostrakhan in the very distant steppes where the Kalmuk are like camping out. And young Helena, as like seven something, eight years old, gets to spend time in direct contact with Buddhists. This is her first experience with Eastern religion. And this legitimately happens. Gary Lockman writes, quote, here the young Helena Blavatsky was exposed to the Mongolian Lamaic system and had her first taste of Tibetan Buddhism. Her mother, too, was inspired by the meeting and later wrote a novel about Kalmuk life, which was translated into French. The prince spent his days in prayer in a Buddhist temple he had built himself. The colors, the images, the incense, the strange words murmured in an unfamiliar tongue must have made a deep impression on the six-year-old, I guess she was six, who had already led a remarkably adventurous life. Blavatsky would later say that her interest in Tibet began at that time. So, and again, Tibet is this kind of mythical place. It is a real place, but like you can't go to Tibet if you're like a Westerner. It's, it's pretty, it's, it's closed. Um, but, you know, this guy, Tibet's, you know, obviously like kind of the, one of the centers of Buddhism. And so this like horse nomad prince is like talking to this little girl about Tibet and she kind of falls in love with, with, you know, Eastern religion and mysticism. Um, and after this, period of time, which legitimately sounds like a pretty rad experience to have as a six-year-old, uh, the family all wind up back together with Peter in Odessa, um, mainly because Helena, the mom, is really sick again, and Odessa has these mineral baths that are thought to be good for her health. Um, yeah. Like most I, love, rich- ugh, I love old school uh, rich people. It's yeah. like, you just just go sit in some salt water. You'll be fine. Mm-hmm. It'll be good. You're yeah. like, just go do rich people shit. People are idiots back then, so they just go sit in baths when they could take simple prescription medicine any of us could get from a pharmacy today. Like, go to Walgreens, dumbasses. I'm sorry. Did you not consider going to CVS? Yeah, motherfuckers. loser? Your death's on you. I don't even care. Like, it takes 10 minutes. We're about to get canceled. Yeah, we are. Yes. So, she probably had, um, uh, what's the thing? Uh, 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 uh. It was like consumption, um, I think, is generally like what people assume she had, right? They just kind of describe her as sickly. So she had some sort of like chronic lung illness that eventually kills her. Um, that again, you could probably knock out in like 10 minutes today. Uh, anyway, she dies in 1842. Um, her baby Helena, uh, now the only Helena, was 11 at the time. Um, her mother was 28 years old when she died. 
Wow. Like, yeah. So that's has her kid at seventeen. She got her novel. She got her novels done before. That's impressive shit. Mm-hmm. That's impressive shit. Yeah. Um, and probably what killed her ultimately was the fact that her doctors kept taking all of her blood. Because um, again, medicine's not great. In 1842, uh, she dies in her mother's arms, which is one of the saddest ways a 28 year old can die. Um, and yeah, yeah, that's not not great. Her mother, who's probably like 48. <laughs> um, so Helena was pr- presumably like you know the daughter Helena was presumably yeah, pretty devastated. The baby. Uh, life goes on though, and sh- soon she and her siblings, she has two siblings now, are all sent to live with her grandparents because army guy, like army dad's not going to take care of him. Like, he's not going to be a single army dad. Like, no, they're going to go live no, with grandma and grandpa. No, who is he? Grew now, from again, Despicable Me? In fairness, these are all rich people. So they're staying with yeah. their grandparents at like basically a castle, you know, like they're, they're living in like a mansion uh, type palace deal, uh, okay. you know, in, in, in kind of like the Easterny. Well, not east for Russia, but east for Europe, part of of Russia. Um, Gary Lockman writes, quote, She was, according to her sister Vera, the strangest girl one has ever seen, with a distinct dual nature. One side of her was mischievous, combative, and obstinate, while another was mystical and metaphysically inclined, characteristics that those who got to know the mature Helena Blavatsky would agree on. Her aunt Nadia, just a few years older than her, tells us that from an early age she was sympathetic to the lower classes and preferred to play with the servants' children rather than those of her own class, and often made friends with ragged street boys. This solidarity with her social inferiors wasn't uniform, and she once had to apologize to an elderly servant whom she had slapped. <laughs> and again, Lachman likes Blavatsky Jesus. and defends her, so it's very funny that he's like, she loved the poor, she did slap that guy. She loved the poor. <laughs> well, that, I also like how it's included in text that, well, she apologized, so, you know, she yeah. must have just been having a bad day. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, she was made to. He does say she had to apologize, right? So we're not. I don't oh, okay. Think she so did also, she didn't own. mean no. it. So also, no, she, she did just not was mean slapping that. At all. that. I mean, again, this is why the servants are a bad thing to have because any kid who has a chance to slap an adult and get away with it's going to try. You know, that's just being a child. I mean, um, that is true. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Um, again, Lachman claims a lot that she like d- deeply loves the poor and the lower class. I ha- I don't see any actual documented evidence of that uh, at all. And the fact that even he is like, yeah, she would slap around the servants makes me <laughs> wonder if maybe I... she wasn't playing with the servant kids just because they had to do what she told them because she's the noble girl. I don't know. I do appreciate that he that he left it in anyways, even though does, it directly undermines his point. I'm like, okay, not the worst journalism, but I mean, the logical thing to do would be to just simply omit that. But yeah, I uh, mean, like, like all of these by people who write about Blavatsky, he's like enthralled by her, but there's a, there's so much shady shit. She does like, he can't keep it out. So there's these moments where you can tell, like he just, he has to include something negative about her, even though it hurts him. Um, <laughs> Anyway, it's very funny. All of these books about Blavatsky are a little like that. Um, So there is some ample evidence, though, that she was kind of a a pretty, what I would call a fun kid. The most detailed stories about her, it makes her sound like the proto-Wednesday Adams. 
right? Like she, she's, <laughs> she's constantly hearing spirits and ghosts. The, the family manor like that she grows up on, there's this subterranean basement system that she spends her time exploring. She's mm-hmm. often found down there by manservants, like sleepwalking or talking to invisible companions. So like See, servants will find her wandering the, the catacombs, talking to ghosts. Yeah, that's dope. This that's a cool the kid. Shit I like yeah. that is, um, uh, she Man. she frequently played with beings no one else could see who she called the hunchbacks and sometimes she would threaten <laughs> other kids to like sick her invisible friends on them if they didn't do what she said um and i bet they totally believed oh man witchy yeah. kids are so funny she does sound pretty cool <laughs> yeah that's 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 a great use of of uh child ghost power that fucking rocks Absolutely. Her sister later recalled, quote, Helena used to dream aloud and tell us of her visions, evidently clear, vivid, and as palpable as life to her. It was her delight to gather around herself a party of us younger children at twilight, and after taking us into the large, dark museum to hold us there, spellbound, with her weird stories. Then she narrated to us the most inconceivable tales about herself, the most unheard of adventures of which she was the heroine every night, as she explained. So huh. she's like telling them lies about going on adventures with her. I was in the, I got taken by like a spirit to this place and like I had to do this and, you know, fought this other spirit or whatever. Like she's, you know what, you know what Helena Blavatsky really would have thrived with what? is, is, is some friends to play D and D with when she was like 11. It does. It just, yeah, it's, it's a big imagination kid thing. Yeah. And it just sounds like she didn't have anyone matching that level of, imagination around her, which just means that you'll be when a weirdo. When she finally gets it, it's going to be with adults. But like also this is a period in which That's if you're into that, good. there's not like a fictional outlet. Like today, a right. lot of the bad stuff maybe wouldn't have happened. Maybe she would have gotten really into fan fiction and eventually started writing her own shit um, and stuff. Like, Well, I think it's but, interesting because her mom was a novelist. So you exactly, would think that yeah. there would have been that like baseline of like, hey, write some of this shit down, you know? But. There's bits of that happening here, but especially like it's this. I mean, again, we're kind of like in the period where like Mary Shelley's going to invent the concept of science fiction. So there's not a lot of there's not a ton of role models in terms of like taking your weird dreams about ghosts and spirits and turning it into a mythology. Um, this is a little that Mary, early for that. Yeah. Learning that Mary Shelley lost her virginity against her mother's own grave was really just like. I think maybe the highlight of my 2022 yeah. so we'll, far. We'll, we'll, we'll do Mary Shelley and Behind the Ladies Who Rocked. Um, yeah, behind, <laughs> behind, behind the Unimpeachable Women. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. God. Sorry. So, so, so okay. Badass. So she's, she's, yeah. So, so that's she's the fucking coolest she's thing making ever up stories about spirits and ghosts, hanging out in the catacombs, scaring kids. Um, pretty dope. So while she's living with her grandparents, and this is in a town on the border of Russia and Kazakhstan, uh, she, she claims, now we're getting into the things that I don't think happened. She claims during this period, she discovered her great grandfather's massive occult library. Um, now I want to read you how one reasonably credible account written for an unpronounceable Polish magazine by Tomasz Stawasinski describes it. Quote, There she found hundreds of decaying books by the 16th and 17th century masters of alchemy and hermetic philosophy, such as Paracelsus, Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa, and Heinrich Kunrath. Helena's great-grandfather, a high-ranked Freemason who in the 1770s was initiated into the Rosicrucian mysteries, selected the books for his collection with meticulous care. We're talking about that. Selected the the books for his collection. Yes, we'll talk about it. Okay, Selected okay. the books for his collection with meticulous care. Helena devoured them with passion, and it wasn't long until she became an expert in the field of occultism. 
The only mm. other person she could tell about her spiritual adventures was Prince Alexander Golitsyn, a colorful character and a frequent guest at Helena's grandparents' house. Golitsyn was a Freemason and a practicing mage whose search for ancient occult secrets had led him to travel to Greece, Iran, India, Egypt, and numerous other places. We don't know much about his relationship with Helena, but without doubt, it is Golitsyn who instilled the yearning for faraway travels in her. Helena wanted to seek out the unknown, the magical, the mysterious. Now... There is a lot going on in those paragraphs. So that one, is, <laughs> yes, Sorry, she's hanging yeah, out I'm, her, I'm her as me. like a fifteen-year-old girl. Her best friend is a prince wizard, um, the wizard prince Galitzin, which is look, pretty cool. That's again very cool. There is it. it I know that Blavatsky goes in a wildly different direction, but it's like. I don't know. Just like imaginative kids creating, going on to create uh, controversial religions huge in this time because that was also well, how spiritualism started was with like and there's two sisters playing a prank oh yeah we're getting they to were that fucking too bored. like yeah but like so Galitzin is a legitimately interesting guy he he was in the circle of a lot of major masonic and spiritual proto gurus in it in the day one of his good friends was a christian mystic named carl von eckerthausen um who was like pri- like one of the major dudes who inspired alistair crowley um, again, Crowley okay. is like a generation later, basically. So that's yeah. the set that Helena is hanging out with as like a teenage girl. These weirdo occultists who are like a generation back from Crowley. Um, now, Galitzin's circle of dudes are all just super obsessed with secret societies. Uh, Eckerthausen wrote uh, about a secret interior church, and they were all very into the Rosicrucians. Now, you had a reaction to that. You probably did, you, you don't know who the Rosicrucians are, right? I don't know who the Rosicrucians are, but I the need most- to know. The, the first thing silly. to know about them is that they didn't exist, probably didn't exist. So when she claims okay. her great-grandfather was one, that's her myth-making, right? But I'm going to okay. quote again from Stalazinski about the Rosicrucians. In 1612, in the German city of Kassel, an anonymous brochure was published. It was a manifesto of the Rosicrucian order, an organization nobody had ever heard of before. The manifesto claimed that medieval occultist Christian Rosencroy had founded an order that gave its members access to the universal mystical truth about human nature and the ways of the world. Two years later, another manifesto was released called The Chemical Wedding of Christian Rosencroy. Rosencroy, it's Kreutz, Rosencroutz, I don't know, R-O-S-E-N-K-R-E-U-T-Z. I don't know. Rose LaCroix. Rose and Croix. Yeah, Rose LaCroix. The hero of the story is presented as Hermes Trismegistus, a god of Hellenic and Egyptian origin. This is getting heady, Robert. This is getting pretty heady. So this fucking Hermes is the alleged author of the Emerald Tablet, which is like a European alchemical text um, and definitely like a, a central mystic document of the Renaissance era. Um, uh-huh. And both of those books had been written by a guy named Johann Andrea, uh, who was a uh-huh. writer, a mathematician, a theologist, and a Kabbalist. Um, so the history of the Rosicrucian order and its founder were like books written by this the, by by Johann Andre, this like mystic theologist and Kabbalist who like invents okay. this guy Rosencroy, who isn't real and a mysterious order. It's like it's not it's it's a it's a. It's. I don't know if it's a prank because I don't know the degree to which this guy doesn't no, believe. I mean, he like writes a fake too- manifesto that he that he he credits to a guy who doesn't exist, who's based in part on like Hellenic and Egyptian mythological figures. Um, it's a little too. It's a little bit uh, too calculated to be classified as a prank. Like, yeah. So basically, yeah. in 1612, this like Rosicrucian manifesto gets like posted up in Germany, and again, there's not 
real Rosicrucians as far as anyone's ever been able to prove. But because this thing, it gets goes kind of viral, this like manifesto being published, they become like a conspiracy theory, right? Like people are like, oh, the Rosicrucians are behind this or that. They're the secret order and they have all this influence here and this influence here. And um, is this like a popular belief or is it kind yes, of a little yes. more esoteric? The okay. Rosa, dudes are fucking writing conspiracy theories about the Rosicrucians um, into the 21st century. Um, it's a, it, it goes very viral. So Helena is hanging out with dudes who are super into the idea of the Rosicrucians in this period with occultists. And she has another entry point, um, into, uh, <laughs> weird occult conspiracy theories from the 17th century. Um, anyway, so, sorry, she has another entry point into kind of like occult conspiracy culture, which are the books of her favorite author, Edward Bulwer Lytton. Uh, now this guy, Number one, her mom had translated a number of this dude's books into Russia. This is like one of her mom's side jobs. Mm. Bulwer-Lytton publishes a very famous book in 1871 titled The Coming Race. Now, it's about an underground master race. The Coming Race? Yeah, yeah. The Coming Race, baby. Coming into a Euro. I've watched that one. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, It's like the Great American Bake Off, but less horny. So the coming race is about an underground master race who have a secret energy called Vril that they use to like, it's their kind of occult electricity almost. Um, And yeah, this book, it's not, Bulwer-Lytton, obviously, this is published in 1871, not a Nazi. I don't even think he's particularly a white supremacist, but his book is going to become extremely influential to the weirdest kind of Nazis. Nazis love talking about Vril today um, and secret underground Nazi bases in the Arctic. All of that has its origin point in Bulwer-Lytton's The Coming Race. Um, So Bulwer is a, Edward Bulwer-Lytton is a very popular author. His books have been translated again. His, Helena's mom translate them when she's a little girl. Um, and one of the books that Helena would have grown up loving from this guy is Zanoni, which is about a secret order of Rosicrucians who had psychic powers and lived forever. This is probably why Helena later claimed that her great-grandfather had been a Rosicrucian, because she loves these books as a kid and she wants to like tie herself and her family to them so that she can claim to have some connection with these like Rosicrucians from her favorite book that become part of her like conspiratorial belief system about the world. Um, right. It's like a, it, she's making her own occult superhero origin story, right? By tying herself and like, no, my grandfather was with the Rosicrucians and like, you know, these these fiction books by Bulwer-Lytton aren't fiction. They're him telling the real story, but he has to keep it secret because it's like a conspiracy, you know? God, I mean, this is such fantasy kid behavior yeah still still i mean you see there's variants of this this basic art like a lot of secret knowledge conspiracy grifters in the modern era have similar Mm -hmm. stories bill cooper who's the father of modern conspiracy theories the first alex jones his whole backstory is that like he when he was working at the pentagon he snuck into his boss's file cabinet and he like saw Mm -hmm. evidence of all the conspiracies he would spend the rest of his life talking about keith raniere Mm -hmm. claimed that he had like interviewed all of the most successful people in the world and had like synthesized the secret information about how to have success from their backgrounds and stuff, right? This is like well-trod guru grifter ground. The idea that like at some point 
as a younger person, you came across like the font of all secret knowledge. And so you got it directly from the source and you can't show anyone else for like whatever reason, right? You don't have it anymore, but you remember it all. And that's why they should listen to you. Um, See, okay. So that, that brings up an interesting point too, which is like, it's not, yeah, it's not just like fantasy fan behavior because most fantasy fans don't have the access and like wealth to take it as far as what you just described and like yeah. what Blavatsky would have had access to. It's like, oh yeah, yeah you can like try to uh, attempt to make it happen because you have more influence and power and money and all that shit. Yeah, and this brings us to the last well-documented part of her early life. Her marriage at age 17, just like her mom, to a middle-aged ass man named Nikifor Blavatsky. He was the vice governor of Erevan uh, in modern day and also Vinde, Armenia. Um, like I think today it's the capital of Armenia. So he's like, he's like the second guy in command of basically that of, of, of Russian like Russia controlled Armenia in the period, um, of their marriage. Lachman writes, quote, one story is that she did so to spite her governess who said that no man would have so unruly, ill-tempered and unpredictable a woman for a wife, not even the old gentleman she had recently taunted and laughed at so much. Faced with such a challenge, the teenaged uh, Blavatsky ca- cast her spell and her plumeless raven was quickly netted. Another story is that hearing of the plan to run away with Prince Golitsyn, the family felt duty-bound to protect her honor and its own and hastily shanghaied the old, by their standards, Nikifor into making an honest woman of her. A third possibility is that she married Nikifor out of anger at her father, who had recently remarried to a Countess von Lang. Yet Blavatsky herself tells a different story. Prince, Prince Golitsyn, it seems, wasn't the only one who took her mystical passion seriously. In the letter to her friend, Prince Alexander, I'm not going to try to pronounce that last name, mentioned earlier, <laughs> she wrote, Do you know why I married an old Blavatsky? Because whereas all the young men laughed at my magical superstitions, he believed in them. She explained that her suitor had so often talked to me about the sorcerers of Erevan or the mysterious science of the Kurds and the Persians that I took him in order to use him as a latchkey to the latter. Right? Hmm. So, number one, there's a, a myth that, like, or some people will argue she and Prince Golitsyn had, like, a thing, which, by the way, would have been him t- molesting her because she would have been, like, 16, but whatever. I was going to say, um, yeah, and that's, that her family that's very statutory. M- marries her off to another middle-aged man in order to get her away from this 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 prince. Um, she uh-huh. claims that, no, I took advantage of this guy. I married him because I wanted to get over to like these these Armenian and these Kurdish and Persian mystics, and he was a powerful man in that area, and I knew he would like open the door to me getting into there. I actually think she's probably telling the truth about that. She has this guy kind of wrapped around her finger for most yeah. of the time that he's alive. Um, I don't have trouble believing that she this was a calculated move on her behalf. She's a, he's good at that. Um, yeah. And obviously, you're a fucking 17-year-old Russian noble girl in this period of time. You don't want to grow up like your mom did, married to some like miserable-ass fucking soldier dude. If you want to take mm-hmm. some autonomy in your life, you have to scheme a bit, right? So maybe right. that's what she does. Um, now, Madame Blavatsky, as she becomes known later, would claim for the rest of her life that, quote, I never was his wife, by which she means that the marriage was never consummated. They did not fuck. This I is a topic see. of heavy debate, okay. which I see no reason to wade into. The two biographers that <laughs> I, I 
Yeah. Hate. I mean, of course, the biographies who are followers and fans of hers are going to want to heavily speculate about uh, who well, and it, when she was fucking ugh, exhausting. It, it, Sorry. it is. We will talk about it more because it is relevant because a big part of the religion she makes is like aestheticism and a lot of it involves yes. sex denial. And there's right. credible allegations that like, well, she was fucking the whole time. And obviously that does matter if you're like. Right. Because there was her, yes. the celibacy thing. Right. Yes. Right, right. Um, yeah. Anyway, this is a topic of debate. Gary Lockman just takes it as like, uh, takes her word for it. And it's like, no, she was celibate. Uh, she might even have been, Lockman kind of described her as possibly even asexual. Um, meanwhile, the other biographer I use for this, Marion Mead, who is more, both way more into woo. She describes herself as like a psi practitioner with psi powers, but also a much more critical biographer of Blavatsky. Um, Interesting. We'll, we'll note that she has two, at least two husbands. At one point, she has two husbands at the same time, I should say. Uh, mm-hmm. She has numerous lovers. She may have had some kids. Um and that I mean, basically she, she fucks. She fucks. She, she, she fucks. And one of the yeah. fun things is that like later again, later in her life when she's a guru, sorry to skip ahead a little bit, but she gets like a doctor's uh to examine her her bits, and the doctor's like, it doesn't look like you've had a kid. And she takes that little bit and she strong arms him into writing a note that says, quote, I hereby certify that Madame Blavatsky has never been pregnant for a, with a child and so consequently can never have had a child. And then she she uses this note to claim that also she's a virgin, even though that's not really what the doctor says, but she like gets a doctor to write something and then like uses that as takes part of her out evidence of that she's okay. Exactly, that is kind yeah. of funny. That is kind it's of funny. funny. Uh, yeah. I do. I mean, it, it's like any any like information about how doctors treated vaginas at this yeah. time is just like so hysterically wrong. Like this was yeah, like the same it's time entirely where you could possible have... that like she had that doctor looking at her foot and he was like, this seems like a vagina to me. I'm a man <laughs> he... in the 1870s. Then <laughs> in the 1870s, you could be like, OK, like you can examine me but the lights have to be off like and mm-hmm. then you're like okay ghosts are coming out of my vagina and yeah. if you don't believe me um you hate women it's the best it's the best yeah i love it's it it's a good time to be a we gotta bring it back or a vagina so for her part blavatsky claimed quote never physically speaking has there ever existed a girl or woman colder than i i had a volcano <laughs> in constant constant eruption in my brain and a glacier at the foot of the mountain Okay, so that's kind of a sexual icon, I've, Helena Blavatsky. I've had um, I've had ex boyfriends who have said similar things about me. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so again, the two the the two arguments here: either she was basically asexual, or she was fucking constantly. Um, okay. I don't know the truth, uh, but there's a lot of fun stories. So uh, she was about to hit the world like a goddamn bomb, right? She's she's uh, basically an adult. She's she's wants to get out there and travel to all the different mystical centers of the world, but she has to do one thing first, Jamie, and that's get well, away from her dork ass nerd of a husband, right? Yes, can't have that dude hanging around. Um, <laughs> so she claims that like she warned her husband she, he was making a big mistake before the wedding and be- begged him to stop. She escaped before the wedding briefly and then got caught. Um, and after they were married, wow. she escapes a, a couple what more a times. What a fun indication of things yeah. to come when you try There's to a, flee the scene of your own wedding yeah, and right gaslight your future honeymoon. husband into not doing it. Yeah, yeah. right before their honeymoon, she like bribes some Kurdish warriors to smuggle her out and she gets caught. Um, 
I think she might have God. made it to Iran. Um, but I hate yes, that she, she was like put in this position, but I love her tactics to not she do is, it. It's pretty fun. It's pretty fun. It's, she's like she's she, like bribing these like nomadic warriors to like help her escape and like getting caught. And it's this it's this she's whole she's dealing. She's like dealing with misogyny yeah. with a real f- dramatic flair. <laughs> she is. She is. It's, it's pretty, pretty wild stuff. Uh, so <laughs> she gets caught again for a while. She's under constant guard in her husband's palace. Uh, but uh-huh. Helena keeps her focus and she eventually, yeah, she escapes to Tiflis in Georgia where she gets caught again. And her husband sends her back to her family so that they can send her and her servants to St. Petersburg to try to like keep a lock on her while they figure out what to do about her. Um, mm-hmm. so like, she's basically a going, supposed to be traveling with her servants to St. Petersburg to be like locked up somewhere until they can break her spirit. But while she's on her way back home, she bribes the captain of an English boat to help her. And with the help of an escape kayak, she kayaks to safety, evading her servants and like gets on this <laughs> boat and gets taken to Constantinople. Um, this is cool. and frees herself. Like, I know. Isn't cool. that dope? That's a pretty cool story. This is cool. This yeah. is God damn. And it's like, I know where the story's going, but I didn't know these details yeah. and they're all cool. And that's dope as hell. And that's where we're going to end for today. Elena Blavatsky okay. has escaped on a kayak to Constantinople, <laughs> which is pretty cool. I mean, she kayaks that, to a boat and that takes her to Constantinople, but still that's pretty cool. Really impressive. Mm-hmm. All right, Jamie. Yeah. Have you ever had to kayak away from a bad marriage? No, I've I've kayaked towards a bad relationship. <laughs> yeah, baby. Um, it is. Uh, it is have the you? Ultimate, huh? Have you I ever have, had to paddle away? I have had. I've had. I've had some adventures while kayaking that involved a sunken kayak, um, and I've definitely had some some strenuous arguments while kayaking with a partner. Ooh. Um, oh no! I don't like kayaking. I'm gonna be honest with you. I'm not a big fan. So, Sorry, I got so upset about your kayaking anecdote that I yeah. I left. Yeah, you have you have a tattoo of a kayak on your bicep that says forever. <laughs> uh, yeah, it says "Do not tread on me." Right <laughs> before you like... came in this morning, you were drilling holes in canoes um, mm-hmm. because kayakers hate canoeists. Yeah, I mean, you don't feel like you're in a, a safe womb-like space in a canoe. I that's like right. to feel like so I'm being born when I get out of the little boat, okay? That's that's right, that's right. Like like Jim Carrey in the second uh, Ace Ventura <laughs> movie. <laughs> I was like, where is this going? Yes, exactly. exactly. You want to plug your shit? Yeah, uh, I guess that the best plug for this is is listen to Ghost Church. It's the limited series I just finished uh, that is Blavatsky adjacent, uh, which I think will become uh, clearer in the next episode. But it's about American spiritualism and a bunch of time I spent with uh, some psychics and mediums in Central Florida. Robert's in it. Paul F. Tompkins is in it. Sophie produced it. Ian edited it. It's just it's just a a, a cool zone jamboree, and uh, it's all. Every episode is out now, so you can listen to all of it. And if you, yeah, and, and then if follow you, me on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, yeah, that, if you want. If follow you don't Jamie. listen to Ghost Church, it personally hurts my feelings. Yeah, if you don't listen to yeah. Ghost Church, I will find you, and I will put your children on the Blue Apron Island, where they'll be hunted by Elon Musk for food. <laughs> yeah, it's Elon Musk and all of his his kids go. Somebody's listening with his kid, their kids right now, and I want you to know, children, that was a threat. Wow, <laughs> your parents better listen Look, to Ghost Church. I feel 
look, it's it's high, it's high octane shit. I just got, I do it. I I would just, I I still cut and check Apple Podcast reviews sometimes, and I checked, uh, I checked them, and I I had one that said, uh, I liked the whole show, but I'm gonna stop listening now because. Uh, Jamie wants the Supreme Court to be abolished, but they still gave me four stars. <laughs> I just well, lost one good. star. I mean, that's fair, right though. Incredibly based, I think. Look, yeah, I, I was like, I, you know, that's pretty fair and balanced. <laughs> yeah, I have to give credit where it's due. Look, they they understand that this isn't the content for them, but they're not going to punish your show for it. They're like, look, Incredible. I enjoyed the whole show, but we have we have a personal disagreement, and I have to dock you a star. I'm like, all right, you know what? Yeah, thanks. Fair. Look, you know what? Good for you. Good, Good for, for them. All of Good us. for them. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury: the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste, the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Ready to unlock a world of entertainment? Philips Roku TV has America's favorite TV streaming platform built in. So you can watch live TV, catch every game, discover must-see shows and hit movies, and get all the best streaming apps in one place, like iHeart, for all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts. Watch what you want, when you want. Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places.